Hello and welcome to the Accounting and Regulatory Updates from the 2019 Not-for-Profit Forum podcast series. In our second episode, Linda Mizon, Chair of the Accounting Standards Board, discusses the evolution of accounting standards for not-for-profit organizations. Here's Linda's presentation. So uh, in terms of talking about what we do as a board, the one thing that um, we, like all businesses, and we think of ourselves as the standard-setting business, we do have a plan. I know sometimes it may not look like we have a plan, but we actually do have a plan. And we have a five-year strategic plan, and uh, in terms of governing what we do, each year then we build another annual plan that supports our moving towards those five-year goals. And I don't think that's much different than any other business that we would, we would think about in terms of strategy. Uh, if you, and, and by the way, if you have these slides electronically, you'll notice uh, embedded links. Those are designed to get you to the documents that we're talking about, and later on, we have things like archived webinars and podcasts that may be useful to you. So if you see in the document a link, it will take you into our website. Uh, I will say we have launched a new website, but I've had my staff check every one of the links in this document, and as of yesterday, they were working. So fingers crossed, they're still working, but I would just say that they're meant to be helpful to you if you have an interest in a particular topic, a webinar, you know, a podcast. So in terms of our strategic plan, I think it's important that you understand that we not only think about the technical aspects of being a standard setter, in other words, what standards do we need to update, but we also talk about things in terms of staying relevant, so understanding what's happening in the environment, what's happening in your environment, where there are certain things changing and we need to be responsive as a standard setter to those changes. And we talk about things like communicating with our stakeholders through different means and looking at a way to learn about what's happening not only uh, in, within the confines of Canada in not-for-profits, but also understanding what's happening internationally in the not-for-profit sector. So we try to do that as well. And then we talk about being innovative. And you know, we talked about AI in the last session. As a standard setter, we're also trying to figure out how to use technology. So for instance, used to be that the old, only way of getting data for us is we'd issue a document and we'd put it out there and we'd ask you to send us a letter to comment on the document. But guess what? A lot of people don't have a lot of time to write letters. So lately what we've been doing is, in, we still leave that option available to be people, but what we've been doing is, for instance, putting surveys out where we'll send out a 10 or 15 minute survey and say, could you please complete this survey? And then we push it out through various means and we ask you to complete the survey so that we can get some more immediate feedback and it also takes less of your time. That's a very simple technology application, but it is moving forward in terms of how we gather data. So as a standard setter, we're also trying to figure out how to do a better job of gathering data. Um, the other thing I just want to mention, because a lot of people wonder what is it we do and how we do it, I just wanted to put a plug in for our new document that we, we published, which tells people how we do what we do, only this time we actually did it in plain English, go figure. Um, you know, you can actually read the document in a few minutes, okay? And it has diagrams and charts and pictures. And so we took the time, because we, we want to demystify what we do as a standard setter. And when people say, well, well, what's a due process? Well, due process is 
saying, here's what we're going to try to do, and then interacting with our stakeholders, and then demonstrating that we've actually listened to them and explaining in a public way how we, how we took the information we got from our stakeholders and how we arrived at decisions. That encompasses due process. But if you're interested in it as, as well, uh, just a quick plug for something that's pretty easy to read and explains what we do as a standard setter. So what's been keeping us busy? Uh, most of you, I think, will have followed, if you have any interest, uh, for instance, in financial instruments, we put out a standard in December that really uh, deals with related party financial instruments. Um, and so uh, in the past, there was guidance that wasn't available for not-for-profits because all of that information was contained in Section 3840 of the handbook and not-for-profits were scoped out of Section 3840. So we kind of didn't give you any options in terms of understanding how you should be accounting for financial instruments if they were with a related party. We changed that uh, and we have um, um, made it so that all of the guidance for related party financial instruments, so if you have a sister kind of charity and you're doing financial instruments back and forth, all of that guidance now resides in, in Section 3856 and you you use 3856. And so that guidance is now available for you. We put it in the handbook in December. It's effective a year from now, but you have plenty of time to adjust to it. Our understanding, and this is important, is our understanding is for the most part, we will not change practice. Notice how I said that. Our understanding is that for the most part, we won't change practice. This is based on what we've been told. So as we interacted with our stakeholders, we gathered data, uh, just exactly what the folks talked about, gathering data, and as best as we were able to identify, you were kind of already getting to the right place, even though you didn't really have perhaps good data. Now what that means is that if you weren't wandering to the right place or there was a hiccup, this, this guidance could actually change what you're doing. So I would encourage you to have a quick look at it sooner rather than later, uh, just to get a handle on whether it will, because if it is changing what you're doing, you're going to want a time to adapt to that, understand it, and plan for it. And so on, on this slide in particular, that's relevant to you. We're also doing some other things, um, and I'll just kind of remind you that in your situation, there are these specialized standards for you in what we call Part 3 of the Handbook. So those are your special standards, for instance, on contributions, uh, where we have uh, uh, put specific guidance that is tailored for not-for-profits. That said, if there's other, other things like financial instruments, like property, plant, and equipment, for instance, uh, where you would be following, in essence, the same type of process as a private for-profit entity, that resides in Part 2. One of the things we've been making great efforts to do in the last year or two is to make sure that when we make a change to those types of standards, so they're in part two, and they, but they could affect both private for-profit and private not-for-profit entities, we're getting feedback from the not-for-profit sector to make sure that if there are any specialized needs, we, uh, we take those into consideration. So an example there would be we're doing a standard for part two on revenue. We're working on that now. But in many cases, not-for-profits, so if a hospital has a gift shop or if you have any kind of retail organization as part of your, your you know, broader not-for-profit organization, 
that, or, that piece of it would be following the Part 2 standard on revenue. So I mention that to you because it's one of the things that we are working on and um, we are attempting to get input from not-for-profits to make sure we understand anything that would affect them. But that is a Part 2 standard that could affect what you need to, to follow and do, so I'd encourage you per this slide to look at these. Another thing I think you're probably going to be interested in, I'm not going to go through everything on this chart, but I'm just pointing out a few things, uh, is a, a, a thing uh, that we're calling combinations. And I, I think I have a more detailed slide later on, but I just want to hit the highlights on that. So uh, we became aware a while ago that there are certain organizations combining, and usually they combine for cost reasons. So a united way here and a united way here they're struggling, you know, in terms of having duplicate costs, so they combine. And under today's accounting rules, you would have to figure out who was the acquirer, and you would have to do purchase accounting. And so, uh, uh, no, in most cases, when you do purchase accounting, what that means is the, the organization being acquired has to be marked up to fair value. That doesn't make any sense in this case. If you've got two entities that are basically doing the same kind of thing, the same kind, they have the same kind of mission, all right? And they serve the same kind of clientele. Maybe it's not exactly a match, but it's very close. They're basically combining in today's day and age, and I think there was a big example recently uh, with a, two of the cancer foundations, but they're combining because they want to reduce their overhead costs and their costs of administration, and they serve some of the same clients. So they, 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 they do that combination to get more dollars spent on the truly important work that they're trying to do, as opposed to pay for people to you know, keep their books and, and you know, do their financial statements and you know, whatever needs being done. And so uh, we've become persuaded as a board that making one side get fair valued isn't really useful. It's not a useful exercise for the accountants to have to go through, and it doesn't really uh, produce financial results that are useful to the people who want to look at the financial results, because the entities are just basically combining. So we're doing a project now to allow what we, what we think we would do is in certain circumstances, which we would narrowly scope, um, we would say in those circumstances, we would allow you to, to combine the two entities at book value and carry on from that point going forward. And it has a couple of advantages. We think it makes sense in that set of circumstances. It's better information, but it's also, uh, it's also a lot easier and doesn't cost a lot of money. So I would encourage you um, to follow that project. The board just... Um, this is February, so January, the board just instructed staff to start scoping that project. We approved a project a proposal for that project for part three. We're looking and doing some research into similar situations in part two, in some cases rural, rural co-ops where they combine for the same reasons. 
but we haven't figured out a way to truly scope that yet, uh, understanding the different mechanisms that uh, exist in different provinces for co-ops. But stay tuned on that. We're going to do some more research on that. But we've decided to split the two projects, continue with the th part three project so we can move that along on a timely basis. So I'd encourage you to follow that project if you've run into this circumstance in the past and that you can uh, give us your feedback as we move forward. But there's a lot of things going on. Those are a couple of things I just wanted to mention. I've got some, some more detailed slides in the back, but I wanted to really hit those in terms of a priority perspective to get your attention. So knowing that I didn't tell you everything, uh, I'm still going to ask this question. So we have revenue, which I explained. Contributions would be an update to the revenue recognition solely focused on non-for-profits. So when you get contributions, how do you recognize those? The combinations I just explained to you. There's also a project on, on hedging for financial instruments. So if you have any hedges in place, we're looking at that. Related parties transactions, financial statement concepts, which are the concepts documents, which uh, factor into part three. And then there's the relevance of financial statements, meaning are the financial statements as they exist today, are they relevant to what you need to do or should they be changed? What do you care about? Wow, that doesn't surprise me a bit. I'm going to give it, just because it may be still changing. Last time I, I moved too fast. But that tells me that we are, we are prioritizing the right thing. So that is very useful information. My staff, if they were here, they're not because they're doing some other stuff today. They'd be doing cartwheels. So thank you very much. That's that, well, maybe not cartwheels, but there you go. So I've talked about this a little. Uh, but I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to give you this slide to give you a little bit more information. This is the financial instruments one I just talked about with the related party financial instruments. But what I wanted to point out here, it's, it's, it's effective 1-2020. So you've got this year to take a look at it and make sure you're comfortable with it and that you don't have any surprises. But if you noticed the, the two links, like one of them is a, a Kind of right and kind of wrong. So it says sign up for our webcast. So sorry, I've already done that webcast. You can't sign up for it. However, based on our test yesterday, that link will take you to the archive of that webcast. So you can listen to the webcast at your convenience. So it's never gone away. I never really truly go away. I just am not live, okay? So uh, if you follow that link, you can listen to the archived webcast, which gives you the high level information on this particular change. Or in another version, we had a Q&A between a board member and a staff person in a podcast format. The podcast format's shorter. Uh, I think on average our podcasts last around 10 minutes. So what you might want to do is listen to the podcast and say, I don't care about this, or oh boy, I do care about that. And then you can go to the webinar and then you can get more information if you need to. But that's why that slide is there. So again, that's on uh, financial instruments with related party. This is just another slide that gives you um, some details on it. it. It talks about what you do where you have uh, financial instruments between related parties, how you do the measurement initially and then subsequently. Uh, and it helps a little bit in terms of the disclosures that you're required to give. And as I say, it gives some, some good measurement guidance that is, a, that is uh, germane to not-for-profits. And so we'd encourage you to take a look at that and the, um, 
It is required to be retrospectively adopted, but we've given you some transition relief so you don't have to do some stupid things. Like you don't have to look at financial instruments that are no longer on your books. You got rid of them in the comparative year, so forget it. Good enough. You know, we try to make it where we can relatively easy for you when you have to adopt these new standards. So if, you, if this does affect you, please do look at the relief provisions. So you said you cared about this, so I've got this slide in. And again, down at the bottom, if you see the reference to the podcast, again, you can have a little, I think the revenue one's a tiny bit longer, but none of these are longer than 15 minutes. And you can have a listen, and you can understand what we're doing relative to revenue in part two and contributions in part three. Um, and I'm not gonna go through a lot of detail on the revenue piece other than to say, in most cases in my experience, you're in a very simplistic revenue, traditional revenue model if you have a gift shop or something like that. If you have a commercial operation that is more complex, then you may need to take a look at this because it has things like multiple element arrangements, you know, that sort of thing, uh, including whether you report revenue gross or not, um, and some, um, when you get upfront fees, what do you do with those fees and when can you recognize on those fees? So if you do have an organization in your umbrella that is a little bit more complex, you might want to look at this. But in general, I don't think any of the clarifications we're making would have too much impact. I would encourage you instead to really pay more attention to the contributions project, which is right now we're doing research on that to try to understand the types of transactions that not-for-profits do and what is the right accounting for those transactions. Now there's a lot of noise on the contribution project around we have two methods now and are we going to switch to one method and I would really like to dispel the the myth that we're we're actually set on getting to one method what we're set on is making sure that however people are recording their revenue that there is a good understanding of how it should be done so it could be we end up with two methods but we don't really call them two methods so we do not have a preconceived agenda on where we need to go here, but what we are concerned as we do our work is finding that when people say they're applying you know, the deferral method, they're actually applying to pieces of both methods. And we're, or, so we're just saying we're going to take a look at the type of revenue, we're gonna clarify that. Uh, we're gonna look at things like, what do you do when you've got restricted contributions? Uh, the never-ending discussion about endowments, we would like to clarify that. And at the same time, it's quite likely we're gonna take a look at the 500,000 capital asset exemption, uh, just because that hinges on uh, the size of the organization and how you recognize revenue is also an indicator of the size of the organization. So uh, that's the project I think I would really encourage you to be following. And again, if you go to our website, you can find that. I can't remember if I gave you a link on that. Um, I didn't, but we can get that for you. We can certainly send it out to the CPA Canada folks. This is the slide on the combinations project that I was talking about, so I've in essence already told you about it. But it's the notion of A plus B equals C, meaning at book value. So this would be what we think is an indication of us trying to keep our standards relevant. Um, so that we're actually addressing the types of transactions that exist in the marketplace today in a relevant way that gives you good results in a simplistic fashion. 
uh, related party transactions, we continue to do more work on this. And one of the things I would, I, I would tell you to, to do is this, I think, will largely impact part two preparers, but I would encourage you every now and then just to check back. Uh, there may be a linkage in this project to the combinations project I just talked about, but for the most part, I don't think you would touch this one too much. However, this is the one on hedging that I mentioned. And what I would say now is we're talking to organizations in part two and part three about number one, do they use hedges? And number two, completely separate question, do they actually try to do hedge accounting? Those are two separate things. And in the vast majority of cases uh, where we're talking to people, People will, use, they will they will go to the bank and they'll say, I need a hedge um, because I've got a foreign currency contract and I want to protect myself against swings in foreign currency. Uh, interest rate hedges and foreign currency hedges are by far the two most types of hedges that organizations in part two and three use. However, what we're finding in most cases is no one tries to even do hedge accounting. They just use fair value. Why? It's easier. They don't care about the volatility, which is why big organizations do hedge accounting, because they want to eliminate volatility, okay? Hedge accounting is sometimes complicated, and they don't want that complexity, so they can just call up the banker at the end of any period and say, what's the fair value of this instrument you sold me? And they can book the change in fair value through their results, and that's all they care about. So if that's where you're sitting, then you don't need to worry about this project. If there is some reason you wanted to do more sophisticated hedging, then you might care about this project. And we haven't decided yet as a board uh, how far we're gonna go with that because we're, for the most part, we're finding that what we have out there today seems to be meeting about 90% of the needs for most of the, the stakeholders. So polling question number, th number three, where again, the staff is interested in this, it says, do you use hedge accounting? which is why I belabored that a bit. So if you do hedging, do you use hedge accounting? And the answers are always, sometimes never. I'm not sure how to apply hedge accounting. Never, hedge accounting is too complex uh, or not, uh, not applicable. Interesting, most of you don't even use hedge accounting. So in that case, I would say you're not really worried about that project. But that's, again, useful information. Quick slide on financial statement concepts. You have the concepts documents for both parts two and part three. Uh, those have been in place for quite a number of years. So when we set up the handbook the way it is now, where we went to part one for public companies, we went to part two for private, non -for, or private for-profits, and part three for the unique needs of, of non-for-profits, we just kind of took those concept documents and plugged them in. We didn't really change them. Uh, as a board. And so we're taking a quick peek at those concept documents now to see if anything needs to be changed. Again, do not interpret this as some, you know, scheme to put everybody onto IFRS or if you hear that, call me and tell me who said it because I'm going to go talk to them, okay? We're not doing that. I have been on the, I've been the chair of the board for five and a half years and before that I was a volunteer member on the board for eight and a half years. I've been doing this for 14 years now. We have no master plan to move everybody to IFRS. Just, let's just stick with that. At least not while I'm around, okay? Um, I wanted to mention this topic again, you've got a slide on it, but this notion of trying to leverage work we're doing between parts two and parts three because you have common needs. 
we're doing a much better job of identifying that. And so what that means for you, why do I want to tell you about this? Because it means that sometimes we're going to ask you to take a quick peek at things to tell us if we're taking your needs into consideration. So the, good, the project I would give you as an example would be revenue. I don't want you to spend tons of time delving into that, but if you do have an entity that you do the books for, uh, or, or that you manage, that is it, technically a for-profit entity, you may care about this. Again, um, just uh, think about that, because we don't want to inadvertently write a standard that handcuffs you in some way, or doesn't take your needs or your reporting considerations uh, in, into consideration, so just be mindful of that. Uh, getting near the end now, and I'm doing, I think I'm actually going to be either on time or under time, which never happens, but um, we talked a little bit about the relevance of financial statements, and I just wanted to draw your attention to a document we put out in mid-December. It's called the Framework for Performance Measures, and if you see the little box in the corner, that would take you into the link to let you download the PDF. Uh, the document is in the 20s. It's about 20-ish pages long, give or take. There's an appendix at the end that I don't count because it's all the, the it's like the bibliography, you know? Nobody reads the big bibliography, I don't, but anyway. Uh, well, my staff does, but there you go. Um, so, uh, but it's a document that we put out in response to a whole range of users of financial statements telling us that the financial statements were suffering from a lack of relevance. So let me explain what that means. This all started in the public company space and then it morphed a little bit. So a couple of years ago, uh, we were talking to um, a user organization, some financial analysts uh, who do research on public companies, and they said, you know what? Um, about 80% of public companies in Canada now use non-GAAP measures meaning measures that aren't defined by GAAP. And those same analysts were telling us that the financial statements basically only give them, depending on who you talk to, between 10 and 20% of the information they need to make investment decisions. And that all the rest of the information they were using came from outside the audited financial statements. And so as a standard setter, I said, ooh, that's not good. Because that means that maybe we're not getting the right things in the financial statements or in the financial statement disclosures, or maybe there's just too many disclosures and people can't wade through them. So we started a dialogue going, and what we learned was, you know, that's true, and maybe we're not going to be able to change the fact that they use this other information. But, the, but what we wanted to do was then make sure that that other information had some quality to it. So just remember this, if you're doing a set of GAAP financial statements, you, you're, you have accounting standards that say, here's what you need to do. You do that, and then you have the auditors come in and you have the auditors audit that. And so there's a process that lays out the quality that you need to follow. And the auditors audit to those standards, and you end up with an audit opinion that says, yeah, you're materially correct. I mean, not everything is perfect, but you're materially correct, and you followed the rules. But when you're in, the, in this other world of metrics, there's no rules. There's no standardized definition of what the metric is, 
Yes. Okay. How many of you? I just straw poll. There's no. This is not on your thing. But how many of you still compute, even if you don't use it a lot, cost to raise a dollar? So some of you still do. I got to tell you, I am the chair of a small foundation board, and my board members want to know that every board meeting. And I'm saying it's not important because guess what? However we compute it, the organization next to it computes us differently, and then the next one computes it differently, and the next one computes it differently. So I'm glad to see that, it, that it's, it's dying down a bit, but some, some organizations still mechanically follow this. The whole point of this discussion was that for most of these metrics, whether for you, uh, it, it might not be cost to raise a dollar anymore, but you're, you also, I know, are doing a lot of metrics relative to the impact you're having with the dollars that you get. There's no standardized definition to these metrics. And that's fine because each entity needs to decide how to do that. But what this framework talks about is what quality metrics, what quality measures do you have to make sure those metrics are computed accurately, consistently, period to period? So if people are looking at them period over period over period, have they been computed the same way all of those periods? And if you change it, have you told people that you're changing it and why you're changing it? and made sure that if they follow the trends that you've gone back and looked at those previous calculations to modify the calculation for whatever reason you modified the calculation. So in this document, we talk about the different roles that people play in, you know, the, the preparers of the statements who do these metrics, the users, and, and in your case, it may be a granting foundation or someone else who's a donor, a large donor, and they're looking at your impact metrics. Um, we talk about the, the users, we talk about the auditors if they get involved, we talk about the directors who have oversight. But in this document, what we attempt to say is, you can use any metric you want that you think is relevant to your reporting, but there should be some, there should be some principles of quality that you should follow when you produce these metrics. And that's what this framework is all about. As far as I can tell, we're the only standard setter who's, who's done something like this. And I ha can tell you that the people who are interested in this framework, when we were doing the outreach on this framework, a third of the feedback we got came from outside of Canada. And I kind of, you know, Canada's, a, you know, we're a, very, we're a very big country geographically, but we're a smaller country in terms of our market cap or size. But it kind of put us on the map in terms of our peer standard setters. They were very interested in what we're doing, and they continue to follow this project. So the link is there. You can download the framework. And it's a, what it is is a series of principles that help you look at whether or not you've got quality oversight over any of the metrics that you might use. We decided early on in the project that this kind of guidance wasn't just relevant for public companies, but it could also be relevant for not-for-profits and for private for-profits. Uh, for their users as well. And so we're pretty proud of this, and I'd encourage you to take a quick look at it. So with that, uh, again, I'm getting close to the end, and I'm going to actually finish a few minutes early, I think. We've got a plug here for how you get involved, if you're interested in getting involved. So there's some website information, a couple of our staff contact information. The standard is a weekly newsletter that comes out. It comes out at 8 o'clock on Tuesday night, like clockwork. It's a really simple thing because what it does 
is you, you, when you sign up for it, uh, you say, I'm only interested in not-for-profit standards. So you can exclude all that other noise if you're not interested. And then every Tuesday night, it'll come and it'll give you little click-throughs where you say, this document's been issued or the accounting standards board's going to discuss this at their next meeting. You can just, if you're interested, you just click on that link, takes you to the website, you get the little blurb of what's happening, and you can decide whether or not you care about it. And if you don't care, it takes you a couple of minutes, and then you just blow it away until the next one comes out the next Tuesday night. So if you're interested at all in what we're doing, I'd encourage you to do that. Thank you for listening to the second episode of the Accounting and Regulatory Updates from the 2019 Not-for-Profit Forum podcast series.